the last year of Christ's ministry, appearing to his disciples as God in the transfiguration, declaring he was God, the great I am, showing through healing the born blind and raising the dead that he was God, showing his concern for the lost and revealing his coming death to the disciples who wouldn't listen. Those really are the themes of this, this last year, the revelation that this was not just a prophet. And this was common revelation. The third year, he really leaned into it. This, he was himself God. So the first of those lessons, who do people say I am? Jesus and his disciples are on a retreat up in Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles north of Galilee. And Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say I am? And the people thought Jesus was, well, he could be John the Baptist because the liberator that the people are expecting hasn't come yet, so his John the Baptist work must not be done. They don't recognize who Christ is. Maybe he's Elijah, the forerunner of the Messiah, per Malachi 4.5, not realizing they're looking at the wrong day of the Lord. That, that's coming in the future still. That prophet of Deuteronomy 18, he was that prophet, but he was also the Messiah. This was really the key question. Then and now, we must all decide who Christ is to us. Peter, declaring him to be the Christ, is not just Christ's identity, but Peter's trust in Christ. Christ says that he's going to build his church on this rock, on Peter's declaration of his identity, not on anything else. And then Jesus at this time began speaking about his coming mistreatment and death at the hand of the Jews, not cloaking in an allegory. He's revealing his mission and his purpose. So Peter pulls him to the side and corrects his misunderstanding. Yeah, good old Peter. Regardless of his declaration that Christ was the Messiah, he didn't really understand. He didn't really see how this Messiah thing was supposed to work. And Jesus responds to the rebuke of Peter with a very sharp rebuke of his own. Then the next week, we talked about the transfiguration. Following right on this revelation, this declaration of who, that Jesus was the Christ, with his disciples in that same area, Jesus and his inner circle go further up the mountain to pray with Peter, James, and John. And while, he's, while he is praying, he begins to be transfigured. In the act of prayer, his physical nature changes. The Greek metamorpho, to change into something else. Part of his divine nature was shown through his earthly incarnation. But the divine started leaking out much more. It's described by the witnesses of whiteness or brightness. Bear in mind, Jesus literally is the light of the world. And part of that transfiguration is showing that light. Moses and Elijah appear and discuss Christ's mission with him. And obviously they're representing the law and the prophets, the tie-in of the Old Testament. The fact that all the Bible message is one. There may be two Testaments, but it's one message. And Peter, <laughs> he's having a good week, just has to fill the silence. And he speaks without engaging his brain. That common to any of us? <laughs> Let's build three tabernacles. 
not temples, but tents. Let's stay here with Jesus in his glory. We don't want to go back into that scary world. And God's Shekinah glory, to the extent it is able to, kind of sneaks up on them. The Shekinah glory of God surrounds them. Now, that's a word that does not appear in the Bible. It's a Jewish term representing something that does appear in the Bible, is this glorious brightness, whiteness, along with the, the existential dread. Uh, exposure to God shows us who we are, and that's never a comfortable experience. We, we like our illusions. We don't want to really see the filthy worms we, that we are. But the Shekinah glory is a revealing glory. You see God for who he is, and that's a difficult comparison for us. And they hear, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And these men are impacted by, the, by seeing the truth of their heavenly friend. It's, it's a whole new revelation. I mean, they've gone through... At this point, two years of increasingly dramatic revelations of who this man is, their friend, more and more they're seeing their friend is God. And each revelation hits them kind of hard, the next revelation. And the transfiguration is pretty much the ultimate revelation of who this man is. And you can see the change in their writings, which focus on the need for godliness in their lives. Peter, talking about it in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 16, talks as that through knowledge of his son, God puts us on a path of growth. And he describes this path as starting with faith, faith developing into virtue. Oh, that's an unused word. Virtue. The good things about us. I think I lean in too much to the bad things about us some days. But all the good stuff that's in us is, is God in us. Faith leading to virtue. Virtue leading to knowledge. I always want to put it in the opposite order. I have a hard time arguing with Peter, though, because he was working under the, uh, under the authority of God. Knowledge leading to temperance, moderation. Taking out some of the excesses. Rubbing off some of those hard edges. Temperance leading to patience. Being willing to wait for things. Patience leading to godliness. Godliness leading to agape kindness, the kindness of God. And then that leading to agape love, where we love people because of who we are, because we have a truly loving nature. It's a beautiful progression. I wish I could say I was further along. We'll all be at the last step in heaven, which is, which is encouraging. Because when I, when I put myself on this, on this path, I'm having trouble with number two. That doesn't suggest I'm very far along, does it? Then the next message was on the Great Declaration during the Festival of Booths, September through October. And this is, remember, the last year of Jesus' life. By March, April, he's, he's come back to die. This is what, six months before? September, October, November, December, January, February, March. Eight, seven months. He starts a debate with the Pharisees after basically sneaking into town. And he tells them, you won't understand me until you kill me. 
and you are children of Satan. No, no, no. They say, we are children of Abraham. He says, no, no. If you were children of Abraham, you wouldn't be trying to kill me. Their response is, this is why we say you have a devil. You're crazy, boy. And he says, keep my sayings and you will never die. Ooh. Now, you see, literally Jesus is sucking them into an argument, and they love nothing more than to argue. He's using their methodologies to try to reach them. His entire purpose is to try to punch a hole in the sanctity and the self-assured, self-righteous sanctity of these people. Because they cannot be saved until they realize they're lost. And they're so confident that they know everything. Ever tried to witness to somebody like that? And they jump on this statement, keep my saying and you'll never die. Ooh, wait, we got you now, buddy. Abraham's dead. And Jesus' response was, before Abraham was, I am. An unmistakable declaration, if you understand the Old Testament, of who Christ was. To the Jews, this claim is blasphemy, dragging God down by claiming equality with God. And the Bible tells us Jesus then hid himself. No particular, no particular description. Did he go invisible? Why? In some way, he hid himself and left, leaving the mob frustrated because they want to kill him, and they've got no way to release that outlet. Everything you see Jesus doing relative to the authorities in that third year is just cranking them up another notch every time he has an encounter with them getting them madder and madder and madder at him because God has a specific purpose. If Jesus is to die, somebody has to be mad enough at him to kill him. And we don't think too much about this, I don't think, but you can read in that third year a campaign to irritate the authorities as much as possible. Okay, God is playing them like a fiddle. Because God is perfectly capable of altering human events in any way he sees fit. You know, we're, we're not going to get in the way of God. But God is literally setting up the events. And we can see it if we study the scriptures. He's setting up the events that will get these people mad enough to kill this prophet. Yeah. Sounds familiar, don't it? Yeah, every one of those signs and wonders is intended to aggravate Pharaoh and to demonstrate how little control Pharaoh has. And that's the best way to get a king moving, is to make him feel small. The best way to get these religious leaders moving is to make them feel threatened. So everything Jesus did chipped out their foundations and made them worry about the, what the Romans were going to do. It left them with no alternative than to kill this upstart. Another, as I said, another public humiliation for the Jews. But at the same time, another chance for everyone there who is listening to repent, to believe, and to turn from their sins. It's not just about making the Jews look bad. It's about preaching to the people. Lesson 154. Jewish baggage number one. And we actually see this in two different lessons during these nine. 
This, this very Jewish idea, which is very much a cornerstone of modern thinking. Jesus' disciples are walking down the street, and they walk past a beggar, blind man from birth. And the disciples ask, who sinned that this man is blind? Because somebody had to. He's being punished. He was born blind. Someone's being punished for their sin. This is the Jewish belief. And it's still a belief today. When you see someone who's gotten hurt, when you see someone who appears to be under the judgment of God, be careful, that's not your place to judge. But you see someone who's having trouble in their life, what do we think? Oh, God must be trying to get their attention. Such a shame, I wonder what I don't know. That's always running around in the back of our heads. And it's wrong! First of all, we have no business judging there. But that was the business of the Jews. They judged everybody. Because this was a foundational belief. No one told them it was wrong ever. Matter of fact, their, their, their Pharisees told them it was right. This is the way God worked, they are told. So it is a cornerstone belief in the Jewish mind. This man is blind. Either he or his parents sinned. And so the disciples are asking Jesus, their teacher, who do you think it was who sinned? And Jesus says, you guys are missing the point entirely. That's not the way it works. Now, is blindness the result of sin? You have two choices, guys. You can do this, or you can do this. Okay, if you're doing this, someone's confused, and it's probably not me. So, we'll try this again. Is this man's blindness the result of sin? Yes. Wholesale sin, not retail sin. It ain't what his parents did. It ain't what he did. It's the curse of sin on the world. There were no blind people in the garden. But the genetic defect that caused this man to be born blind is an aspect of the curse of sin. Talked about that. Now, as Jesus heals this man, he could have walked up to the man and said, be healed. And would he have been healed? Absolutely. Right then. He could have healed the man from 200 miles away. He could have healed the man from 2,000 miles away. He's God. But that's not what Jesus does. He spits into some mud and kneads it into clay and sticks it on the man's eyes. Why would God play in the mud? Well, first of all, he tells the man to go wash it in the pool of Shalom. Siloam, I'm probably mispronouncing it. That's an act of faith, similar to Naaman. And the guy was blind anyway. It didn't hurt that he had mud on his eyes. But at the same time, this is a challenge to the Pharisees. Because remember, God had said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And the Pharisees had taken that, and they kind of went off the rails. They had their Mishnah, 39 forbidden acts of work. Number 10 was you can't need dough. And oddly enough, the Hebrew word for dough is identical to the Hebrew word for clay. 
So you couldn't need clay either. Well, guess what Jesus was doing on the Sabbath day? He was breaking Mishnah. Now, what the Pharisees were getting mad at, was it healing on the Sabbath or was it breaking their precious Mishnah? Yeah, both. But I'll tell you which one irritated them more. I guarantee. So once again, Jesus is cranking up the aggravation factor. It's a direct challenge to the Pharisees. He is breaking their Mishnah. Was that a rule from God? No. Anyway, Jesus was Lord of Sabaoth. Jesus does as he pleases because he is God. But it absolutely broke the Pharisees' rules. When Jesus came, he came to give Jews a renewed revelation of God's standard. It was not a different standard. The standard was always there. But they had interpreted it the wrong way and spent how many years? Close to a thousand wandering off in their own direction. In particular, the last 400. God had said, this is the standard. The Jews said, okay, how about if we do this? And their leadership had led them astray for 400 years. More than 400, but let's use 400 as a convenient number. God's standard, do it his way or perish. That's it. And Jesus came and said, you're doing it wrong. This is God's standard. He revealed the truth to the blind. He revealed the blindness of those who thought they could see. And at the close of this encounter, when the Pharisees asked if they're also blind, he tells them since they believe they can see, they're not only blind, they're lost. We would say they're none so blind as will not see. That's kind of the boat they were in. They were confident in their worldview. Didn't match up with God's. I wonder how many worldviews we have that don't match up with God's. Then in Lesson 155, we talk about Jesus teaching in parables. And again, starting in the second year, this is the third, but starting in the second, Jesus primarily taught in parables. We spent a lot of time talking about parables. They're earthly stories with heavenly meanings. It's a, it's a definition for kids, but it's a good definition. These are, it's a simple illustration of a difficult truth. These are allegorical stories. Now, the problem with allegory and or the advantage of allegory, it both illuminates and obscures at the same time. You have to put a little effort into it. It's not free teaching. Jesus was not handing out big signs that said, this is my message, this is my message, this is, you can't hardly miss it, this is my message. He was putting it in a little bit more allegory. I'm driving down 45 uh, last night, and between roughly U of H and the South Loop, I run into a series of five billboards. They're all for the same law firm. And they were not subtle. The law firm was push and win. Push the German spelling and win the uh, Vietnamese spelling, Nagoyan. So this is, and I thought it was beautiful. Push and win. We push, you win. Over and it's subtle. No, no, not subtle. The exact opposite of subtle. Okay, it was these five billboards. Bonk, bonk. Did you get our message yet? Bonk, bonk. Did you get it? Bonk. Teaching in parables is a little more subtle than that, okay? Jesus 
intent in teaching in parables was you had to put a little effort into it. The message was there for anyone willing to put in the time, for actual seekers. But the casual, they, got, they saw a little show and they left. But it's intended, there's, there's clues in here that are intended to make you curious, to want you to think about it. It separates the, the truth seekers from the merely curious. Between 35 and 45 parables are included in the four Gospels. And we focused on the Good Samaritan, a third-year parable. And it was given as a direct answer to the question, who is my neighbor? So for this parable, we don't have to guess on what the message is. Pretty obvious. It was given in response to a question. Here's what it's there for. And in that parable, the Jewish leaders expected to be the best. These are the people who were the paragons of Jewish behavior, yet in this story, they fail to love their neighbor. Instead, the lowly outcast Samaritan does. The point of the story, first of all, and it's a, it's a lesser point because it's not the main point, but the lesser point is knowing the law and living out the law are two different things. God is not impressed by who we are. And as usual, we see this a lot in the third year, and even in the second, Jesus is using a principle of cognitive dissonance, miscasting people, putting the people who society is expected, society expects to do the wrong thing, making them the heroes of the story, and taking the people who should do the right thing and making them the villains. The priest and the Levites do the wrong thing, and the lowly outcast Samaritan does the right thing forcing people to maybe think a little bit about what's going on. Consider, why is this the case in this story? What is his point? But his point is not morality. The love of the Samaritan for the hurt man is not the point. Caring for the hurt is not the point. The lawyer came with a question to Jesus. What can I do to earn eternal life? Jesus gave him an example of extreme love of a total stranger and said, go and do likewise. Is it possible to show that much love to every one of our neighbors, humanly? Again, this or this? Think of it as a survey. I love you guys, but if a surveyor... If a census taker came to this class, he'd have to mark not home. You're killing me. No, it's not achievable. We can't do it. What's the message? Right, you can't earn your salvation. You cannot earn eternal life. You can only receive it. That's the point of the Good Samaritan. Don't get lost in all the moralizing. Don't get lost in the little details. Oh, it's significant that he left three pence. No, it's not. It's a detail included for veracity, to make the story come alive. But the point is, while it's a great example of loving your, your neighbor, we can't get there from here. And then Jesus taught about self-denial. Speaking to a large crowd, told them they had to hate their family members to be his disciples. Clearly, hate is hyperbole. It's inconsistent with the rest of the scripture. But you have to treat them as though you don't love them at all in comparison to your dedication to God. And he compared discipleship to building a tower or fighting an unfavorable war. It's necessary to consider the cost before you go in. I would say it's 
comparable to losing weight. You have to commit to a diet. You can't just and expect the weight to fall off. You got to be disciplined. I think if Jesus were preaching to a modern audience, that's the example he'd use. Uh, for the most part, the Jews in that day and age, they didn't have enough excess nutrition that fat was a problem. Clearly something has changed. The key is you don't fall into discipleship. It requires commitment and discipline. Funny how it's the same word. Discipline, discipleship. Same base, same root, same idea. It's a commitment. We spent that week also talking about sanctification. From the Oxford English Dictionary, the action or process of being freed from sin. Sanctification is one of those big religious words we like to throw out there. It trips off the tongue, doesn't it? Sanctification. The, the exclamation point's automatic. We are made righteous when we accept God's gift of Christ's sacrifice. But that's a declared righteousness. doesn't make us free from sin. didn't make me not sin yesterday. We remain sinners. But now our past and future sins are forgiven by God. Yay! Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Amen. I'm going I'm to play crickets for the rest of you. But that is positional sanctification. We are freed from the penalty of sin by our place in Christ. Our position in Christ versus our previous position of not. Out of Christ. But then sanctification, the other half, and you know, I gotta love our scholars and the English language. They've got a PS for both of them. You got positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. That's removing sin through the use of an insurance company, right? Nope. It's growing to be a less sinful per person through the power of the Holy Spirit, a pathway, uh, a journey. And as we, increase, as we decrease our sinning, we also need to learn, to learn more of the ways of God, increasing our godly behaviors. God predestined us to be Christ-like. Will every one of us who is saved one day be Christ-like? The head moves up and down. Think of it as a neck exercise, okay? If nothing else, maybe your neck will be a little warmed up when we leave here. Um, yeah, it's going to happen. God gives us room to determine how fast it happens. That is such a weird idea. God is such a loving parent. He wants what's best for us, but he will allow us to ruin it. It, can, it is going to happen in heaven. We decide how much it happens here. God gives us room to disappoint him. That's a weird way of looking at it, but I think it's a very true way of looking at it. God gives us room to disappoint him. That's very loving of him to allow us that much free will inside his sovereignty. But that's what we're doing. We're deciding on a day-to-day -day basis how much we want to disappoint God. Does looking at it that way change the way you think about your life? Think about your next sin, you know, the one that's sneaking up on you right now. How much are you willing to disappoint God? I think if I could keep that thought a little more forefront of my brain, I might have a better life. 157, we talked about 
Jesus raising Lazarus. And it starts with a message. He's in Perea. A messenger comes to tell him that Lazarus, a dear family friend, a personal friend, is sick unto death. He does not have a cold. He has first-generation COVID. It's actually even worse than that. They're pretty sure he's going to die. Jesus assures his followers, this illness will not result in death, but is happening to glorify God. Then he waits in Beth- uh, He waits long enough so that he will get to Bethany four days after Lazarus' death. He's putting the will of God over his love for that family. Do you think he wanted to go there sooner? In Jesus' personal life as a human being, did he want to rush out to Bethany? I think so. Did he want to spare Mary and Martha four days of grief? He loved them. Did he want to spare Lazarus the experience of dying? He loved them. But to accomplish the will of God, he had to wait. The same principle that he revealed to his disciples. You have to put the will of God over your love for family. And he set up a great miracle as a result of this. And then we see Jesus in that story in mourning. Because he's seeing Mary and all of these Jews wailing in the presence of death. And we, if you weren't here for that week, it's, it's a bit dramatic. Okay? Our funeral traditions, very different from first century Jews. Okay? The last time you were in a funeral home, did you hear people wailing at the top of their lungs? Oh! Did you hear that? Because it's not acceptable in our community. You're supposed to stoically bear up underneath the weight of your grief. The Jewish culture encouraged people to get it out. Matter of fact, you hired mourners, professional yellers, screamers, and wailers to come and emphasize the loss that you had experienced with the loss of your loved ones. Klaiusen. Klaiusen is the closest I'm going to get to the Greek word meaning wail. This is what everyone around him is doing. Jesus is moved in his spirit, but the word used in the Greek Enembrimisato, I'm sounding Italian, not Greek, but I'm close, doesn't mean, it means indignant. It means angry. Is he angry because these people are wailing? Is he mad at them because they're making a spectacle? I don't think so. Jesus is angry over the sin that is impacting the human condition. Did God create death in the first six days of creation? Take your pick. You can do this or this. Did God create death in the first six days? He didn't. Death is an aspect of the curse of sin. Entropy, the running down of the universe, everything going to... is an aspect of the curse of sin. Jesus, faced with the reality of the impact of sin on the human condition is indignant and agitated about it. And he begins to weep, not to wail, not to 
Kleiuson, but to Edekreisen, to quietly cry, tears falling down his face. At the human condition, at the impact of sin on humanity. And you know what the good news is? He's here to do something about it. He's not joining in the mourning for Lazarus. He's moved with compassion for the impact of sin on the lives of these people. Angry at the curse of death that all humans live under. Angry at the curse of sin. And Jesus comes to the grave mouth, still emotionally moved, troubled by the grief around them. Tells him to move the stone. There he's told, but he stinks. It's been four days, and four days is important because at three days, you went into the tomb and made sure the guy was actually dead. Because people fall into comas and they don't have modern medical equipment that says this guy's in a coma versus this guy is dead. But after three days, there's no longer a question. You go in and see if he smells dead. If he smells dead, he's dead. And this is an important detail because Jesus did not raise someone from a coma. He raised someone who was dead, 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 dead. Jesus prays there at the mouth of the tomb after the stone is taken away, a very direct and personal prayer to God, acknowledging him publicly so the crowd can see God in this action. And as Jesus has the power to raise the dead, he can also give us spiritual life. That's the focus of that story. Move on to 158. Persistence in prayer. Jesus gives the parable of the unrighteous judge and the widow who will not stop bothering him. So he gives her what she wants just to get rid of her. Now, we can, you can take that the wrong way. First of all, that judge is not God because he's unrighteous. Okay? That is a human example, but it's an example of persistence. But this is a parable by contrast. If even the unjust can be moved by persistence, how much more will a loving, just God be moved by our persistence? And Jesus talked about the need for, and although he didn't use this word because he didn't speak English at that time, he knew English because he's omniscient. Interesting idea. Jesus knew English. He just didn't choose to speak it. He spoke in Aramaic. We need to have a resolute prayer life, focused on a goal and not distracted. At the same time, Jesus talked about the need for penitence in prayer. Penitence is feeling or expressing remorse for one's misdeeds or sins. And the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, and again, he's talking to a very self-righteous audience. The, pa- the Pharisee praying, thanks God but with totally the wrong attitude, confident in his own righteousness, the good guy doing bad, and we got the bad guy, the publican, not a a, a Samaritan this time, but the least respected person in all of Jewish society, the turncoat tax collector, approaches in humility, recognizes his unworthiness, broken over sin, he begs for for forgiveness. Once again, he's using cognitive dissonance, the opposite of what the audience expects, to drive home the idea. It's not who you are, it's your attitude in approaching God. And then the Lord's model prayer, which was actually given in year two, but as we're talking about prayer, God's God, Christ's teaching was holistic. It was all of one piece. It was progressively revealed, but it was holistic. 
If you look at the Lord's model prayer, first of all, it's not given as a magical mantra. Please don't be repeating it all the time because this is the way the Lord told us to prayer. No, this is the example of prayer. It's addressed to our personal Father. That's a wonderful truth we skip over so often. Our Father, not some king. If I had to approach the President of the United States, I'd be pretty nervous about it. While I'm respectful going to God in prayer, I'm not nervous about it. He's my Father. Focused on God and on His purposes. The petition inside the prayer is for the basics of life. Acknowledging Him as the source of all. This prayer relies on God for the remission of our sins. And for our maintaining a forgiving attitude towards others. And it's asking for God's protection and strength in avoiding sin and overcoming temptation. Everything we, that Christ asked for in this model prayer are things that God already promised to give us. That's a wonderful model for prayer. We should be praying for the things that God has said he will give us. And then we finish up in 159 with... I'm calling it Jewish baggage, baggage too. Because if the Jews expected that misfortune was caused by sin, if you're very fortunate, if you're rich, what does that mean? It means you're righteous. Rich men are righteous because God is blessing them. So they must have been righteous first. They must have lacked that sin. And understand, this is a cornerstone belief. of it's, 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 it's baggage. You don't know what's there. It's checked baggage. <laughs> it's part of the way they view the world. So when a rich man comes to Jesus and wants to know what he can do to earn eternal life, and Jesus tells him to give away his wealth and follow Jesus, because he had to let go of everything his wealth got him, the privilege, the protection against the bangs and dings of life. His entire identity was wrapped up in him being a rich man. Jesus says the only way you can be saved is by letting go of that. Because we can only be saved when we let go of everything we bring to the table and beg God for forgiveness. Right? He's learning. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Excellent neck exercises. Jesus says it's very difficult for the rich to be saved. And the crowd is amazed, but we don't understand why, because we lack the cultural baggage. If Jesus is saying the rich can't be saved, the crowd says, well, then who can? Because if the righteous cannot be saved, how can anyone be saved? And Jesus says, that's my entire point. It's not humanly possible to be saved. But God can do it. With God, anything is possible. And literally, the story in the gospel goes from that encounter, the very next thing in scripture is the story of Zacchaeus. Was Zacchaeus a rich man? Oh, he was loaded. He was the chief tax collector in, a, in the most money-productive region in Israel. 
where they collected balsam tree sap that was processed into the most expensive perfume of the day. And you got to know he was skimming, taking what he could. But this very rich man who has a Greek rather than a Jewish name, he's painted as the bad guy, no question about it. While his name means innocent or pure, it's the worst sort of joke to the Israelites. He's of small stature, so he doesn't get much respect. You got an, and, he, and he has to do something very undignified. He has to climb up into a tree like a little kid or a monkey to see Jesus. Zacchaeus doesn't care how he looks, but you got to know everybody's laughing behind their hands at him. Ha! Look at that guy. What a maroon. Jesus flips the script, not only acknowledges him and speaks with him, but wants to have lunch at his house. Zacchaeus wants to show his salvation through active repentance. The Old Testament would have required any debts that he cheated someone out of to be paid back at 120%. He went with 400% restitution. Far and above what the Old Testament required, except in the case of stealing sheep. I don't think he stole anyone's sheep. I think he just took money. Now, this, is, this does not mean repentance requires excess. Okay, that's not the message. Don't get lost. In the idea that we have to show repentance by going out of our way and being extreme. That was Zacchaeus' personal choice and how he demonstrated the, the, his joy over his salvation. But, and Jesus validates that this was true repentance, saying salvation is come to, his, to this house. What a wonderful message to hear. And he said that he also was a son of Abraham. This man, so rejected by Jewish society that he had a Greek name, is now a child of Abraham and is also a spiritual child of Abraham because he's following Abraham in faith. In both aspects, he is now a true son of Abraham, both genetically and spiritually. And we talked about what does repentance look like. We must recognize our sin and our desire to sin, seeing the severity of our offense against God. This is conviction. We must then be broken over our sins, penitent. Not just going through the external motions, but returning to the Lord with all of our hearts. And God promises forgiveness if we will only confess our sins to him. And you, you, it ain't confession if, you still got, if you're still happy about the sin. Okay, it ain't a magic formula, as our friends the Catholics would say. As long as you say this prayer, you've offset your evil deeds. For us to confess our sins, we have to be penitent about them. We have to wish we hadn't done them. And God takes no pleasure in the death of the ungodly. He begs us to turn. Now that's certainly the death of the ungodly is, is, is turning to Christ initially. But he takes no pleasure in us wandering away from his path either. And we know that won't result in death because heaven is assured for those who are saved. But So, Bob says, don't give me a black screen. I gave him a black screen. Bad me. Discussion, ideas, comments about this third year of Jesus' ministry. Have you seen anything through these lessons that you didn't see before? Is there, is there something in here you'd like to share with the group? Or am I going to have to play crickets?